as loud because I won't talk as loud. Thank you so much, AV team. I just got a few announcements. Uh, I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll sit down, and we'll get into God's word. Um, First of all, we have men's ministry this Wednesday night, chapter 2 in our book. So if you can read chapter 2, Pastor Cleet's leading us through that book in our men's ministry. That'll be 6.30 p.m. Wednesday night. We have a family business meeting following our Lord's Day gathering a week from today. So that'll be a week from today. And then don't forget, two Wednesdays from now, we have our day of fasting prayer and feasting. That will be two Wednesdays, and that is a big time in the life of the church. And then I hope you're on the uh, church email list. Pastor Nick sent out a really encouraging email yesterday uh, showing his heart of love for God, for the children of our church, for all of us, and as a church at large. And I read it to my family with great profit last night. So take a look at that as well. Um, If you would take your Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to be actually referencing Romans chapter 8 as well as Hebrews chapter 8. So if you want to do a placeholder there as well, that would be fine. But Matthew chapter 5. The Word of God reads in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and following. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes One of the least of these commandments and teaches others others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered here on this Lord's Day morning People from all age groups, ethnicities, vocations, locations, and the rest. Because we have been made one by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may our song gather the song that's rising all over the globe today. As Christians from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue come together to worship you. Father, we need to have our minds renewed by the living word. We succumb, even without knowing it, to the barrage of worldliness all around us, Lord. And so we come here so that you would grow us, that you would build us, and in doing so, build your church. We pray pray that your word would bring conviction where we need that conviction, not to leave us into condemnation, but to lead us to more and more grace. And Father, where we are lethargic and lackadaisical, and blase about our faith, would you reawaken us? Would you grip us with your glory? And Father, for anyone who is outside the household of faith, and surely there is somebody like that here this morning, God, would they experience the call of resurrection to faith and life in Christ? 
Now, Father, I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to move through the preached word for the good of your people and the glory of your name. My hope and our hope is in you. Gladden our hearts with the joy of the Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may grab a seat. We are in a series through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. And I'm picking up where John left off last week. John, thank you for so capably and well handling the Word of God last week. Where are you, John? Thank you for serving us, brother. I hope you had an enjoyable time. It was great to listen to that message. I think it was Monday. Well, here I begin this morning. In the summer of 2015, Pastor Stephen Furtick of the Elevation Church, I think it's in North Carolina, preached a message in which he said, God broke his law out of love in order to save us. And then he offered up a very compelling illustration. It was of a boy who was playing on the monkey bars and he fell down and he hurt himself severely. And out of love, his dad scooped him up, threw him in the car, and broke every road law, stop signs, red lights, speeding limit, and all that in order to get him to the hospital in order to save him. Anybody familiar with that clip that made the rounds on, in the cybersphere? Now, while that was an emotional illustration, the point that he ultimately was trying to make was actually downright unbiblical and I think patently heretical. Well, for one thing, you and I, humanity, are not innocent kids playing on some monkey bars, right? But aside from that minor discrepancy, the point at hand is this. If Jesus had actually broken the law of God, he would not be able to save us. And so one wonders, did Pastor Furtick ever read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20? The context of that is this. The, as we'll see all through the Gospel of Matthew, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, were trying to debunk Jesus in any way they could, right? And one of the ways they sought to reject Christ was by saying, he doesn't even keep God's law. He, he thumbs his nose, for instance, at the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus did not break the Sabbath. What he did break was their pharisaical additions and interpretations of the Sabbath that enslaved rather than freed people. Now, you'll notice in verse 17, it says law and prophets. Law there would reference the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And then the prophets would be the remainder of the scriptures in the Old Testament. In other words, it was a common shorthand way of saying the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Apparently, I think you'll agree with me based on this text, Jesus was not only a Bible believer, Jesus was also a Bible fulfiller, right? And so I want to preach to you this morning on the king and his Bible, the king and his Bible, three major movements as we walk through this text. I want us to see, first of all, in this message entitled, The King and the Bible, that the Bible is for Jesus. If you need an outline, I think we still have some handouts, 
But you'll see in your outline, point number one, the Bible is for Jesus. We say, what do you mean by that? What I mean to say is this. The Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible is pro-Jesus. The Bible points to Jesus. That's what I mean when I say the Bible is for Jesus. Look at verse 17 again. Christ says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish or destroy them or replace them, but to fulfill them. He has come to fulfill them. Now, microscopically, when it says law and prophets, it, it, it's talking about, anybody know how many laws there are in the Old Testament that they would have to keep? 613, exactly, Stephen. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament. And microscopically, he's saying he came to fulfill them. We'll come back to that with a second point. But macroscopically, again, I think what is being communicated, one level of meaning is this, that he came to fulfill them in that the Old Testament is all about him. The Old Testament relentlessly points to him. Then you get to verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Now, what's an iota? An iota would be the smallest letter in the Greek, ancient Koine Greek language. We would call it an I in English. That's the smallest English letter, I think, right? Goes on to say, not a dot. That's referring to Hebrew. And actually, not even referring to a Hebrew letter, but a Hebrew uh, pronunciation mark, much like that. What is that line in uh, Spanish, Maglio or Donez, that over the end, what is that called? There it is, right there. Or like the umlaut in German. It's not even a letter. It's just, even without it, not much meaning changes. And Jesus is saying, listen, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not even a dot, a pronunciation mark, will pass from the law until what? All is accomplished. I'm just trying to make this first point. Jesus fulfills and accomplishes the Old Testament scriptures holistically, and that they are for him, or that is all about him. You remember when Jesus encountered the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24? What does he say to them? He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have written. Who? The prophets. And then he goes on to say, wasn't it necessary that Christ, speaking of himself, should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then do you remember Luke's commentary? This is what he says he did. It would have been quite a Bible study. He said, beginning at Moses, remember those words? And all the prophets, he interpreted in all the scriptures, maybe an all-night Bible study, the things concerning himself. I don't know what you know about the Bible, but I'm just trying to tell you, if you will understand the Bible, you have to understand that Jesus is the point of the Bible. The Old Testament even relentlessly points to him through typology, through parallelism, through metaphors and similes, and outright prophecies themselves, 300 plus conservatively. Everything in the Old Testament relentlessly points to Jesus Christ. Old-time preachers used to, every once in a while, uh, 
sound off the roll call. Anybody know what that is? And, and every, about once a year I try and do that because it helps me remember the order of the books of the Old Testament because honestly, I, I, I get them all jumbled in my head. Let's just enjoy the fact that in Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. That in Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. That in Leviticus, he is our high priest. That in Numbers, he is a drink of water in the desert of life. That in Deuteronomy, he is the prophet coming that is greater than the prophet Moses. That in Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. That in Judges, he is our lawgiver and judge. That in Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. That in First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. And in Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. That in Ezra, he is the restorer of true worship. That in Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder, not of just of broken walls, but of broken lives. He can do that for you. In Esther, he is our advocate. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer that we will see one day from our flesh. In Psalms, he is our shepherd and he is our song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our coming resurrection. And in the Song of Solomon, he is the lover of our souls. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace and our suffering savior. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the glory of God come down from heaven. And in Daniel, he's the one in the furnace of affliction with us in the midst of life, the fourth man in the furnace. In Hosea, he is, wow, the faithful husband who pursues us even when we're wilding out. In Joel, he's the one who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Amos, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos, he brings justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is the missionary who actually preaches and loves the unlovable. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is our strong tower and our stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is the great revivalist who cries out for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain opened up for a cleansing. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. I'm just trying to say, Jesus is not some Johnny come lately. He is the point of the Old Testament. The Bible is for Jesus. Now, you have heard it said that the Bible is an instruction manual and a love letter. Is that right? Yeah, there's truth in that. But i got to tell you, it's first a love letter. Telling us about the person and work of Jesus from all the books of the Bible. In fact, if you don't see Jesus in the Bible and you just see it as an instruction manual, you will become very legalistic and quite possibly fall prey to a cult. The Bible is for who? Jesus. It's pro-Jesus. It points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you miss the entire point. So first of all, this morning, the Bible is for Jesus. Y'all with me? Now having established that, we're going to see that Jesus is for the Bible. 
You know, when Jesus came, he didn't say, hey, everybody, now that I'm here, you can just forget about the scriptures because I'm here, which is really silly because there's some preachers who basically say that. We wouldn't even know about Jesus, would we, were it not for the scriptures. Again, I look at verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all, all, all is accomplished. And here, I think the layer of meaning that I'm emphasizing here is he's not talking about the Bible in general, but the laws of God in particular. The 613 of them that he fulfills, I think, in two ways. How does Jesus fulfill the laws of God? How is Jesus for the Bible? Two ways. First of all, Jesus comes along and he clarifies the intent of those laws all along. Now, God was, the laws were always, always to be about our heart, right? I mean, what's the 10th commandment? What does that say? Don't covet. Where do you covet? In your heart, right? So God was always after our heart, but in our fallenness, we are really good at wiggling around the spirit of the law by saying we kept the letter of the law, right? Now, the remainder of the chapter, which Pastor Nick is going to preach next week, this is going to come out in bold colors. But I want to point just to a few observations in in the next few verses so that we get the point that he came to clarify the intent of the law. Drop your eyes down at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, what? by the way, what commandment prohibits murder? Anybody remember that? The sixth commandment, thou shall not murder. So he's referencing the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, he's saying you have broken the sixth commandment even if you have hate in your heart towards somebody. Because there was never a murder committed that didn't spring up from a hateful heart. Well, drop your eyes down to verse 27. It's not uncommon to hear men say, listen. I'm faithful to my wife, but a little window shopping never hurt anybody. Well, look at these verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Where, where, where? In his heart. You see, God with those Old Testament 613 laws, wasn't just after external conformity. He was after internal purity. To which everyone in this room right now should have this response. Gulp, right? I mean, that's a high threshold right there, isn't it? That's a really high threshold. And if you have that gulp, that's a good thing. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The first way he fulfills those 613 laws is he clarifies what God's intent all along was. 
But second of all, Jesus actually keeps them. We've labored extensively so far in our series in Matthew to, to lay that out. So let me just quickly rehearse what I've covered in previous messages. Paul says that he knew no sin, Jesus, right? We're talking about his active righteousness. Peter will say he committed no sin. John will say in him is no sin. And the writer of Hebrews say he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Which prompted Jesus to say one time, John 8, 46, can any of you truly accuse me of sin? Answer, no. And that's why we have as part of our gospel, as part of our gospel presentation here, he lived the life that we could not live. Which leads into that next glorious truth, he died the death that we should die. Let me, let me, let me step back for a second, just for the benefit of anybody here who might not need to hear this. I need to be reminded of it. Theologians call, they have a couple different uses of the law. The first use of the law is this, when you read the law of God, is to be like a mirror and say, whoa, I'm sinful. And then to drive us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 says the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Because left or alone, I think I'm quite all right, thank you, right? But I'm not. And I read the law, and it shows me I got more than egg on my face. And it drives me to Christ, the only one who kept the law perfectly and then died for those of us who have not at all. I just want to tell you, whoever you are here, the road to heaven is not paid by your good works of keeping the law. Has already been paved by the man of sorrows who trudged up that hill and bore the judgment of God, bled his, his own blood on that cross as a atoning sacrifice for our sins, was buried and was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's how the road to heaven is paved. So if you're feeling gulp, Turn that gulp into a gallop and just run to the cross where he freely receives all who will come. In other words, go directly from that command you broke last night, this morning, and run to the cross where he paid the penalty for whosoever will. What good news is that, huh? Now how about the person here who would say, you know, I I'm pretty good. And maybe your mentality is, hey, listen, man, if there is a God... I'm going to be just fine because I'm a pretty good person. Okay, would you do me a favor and try on verse 20 for size? Verse 20. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never. We tend to have a pretty poor view of the scribes and Pharisees, don't we? And, and, and for good cause, because we see what chumps they can be in Scripture. We'll see that in ensuing chapters in Matthew. But I think we have a little bit of a um, disproportionate view of Pharisees. Pharisees are actually a pretty respected class of people. Some of them were really sincere and zealous in their service of God. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Many of them came to Christ. They saw that the Christ was the fulfillment of all these laws. I would venture to say that a Pharisee is a person, in the main, you would want as a neighbor, a coworker, 
a teammate, a boss, employee, and all that. If you would ask the typical person in this era in Palestine, um, you need to be as good as a Pharisee. They probably would have said, I could never be that good. I mean, these cats are, are pretty sincere, 713, even the crazy interpretations they, they try and do. It's all from a good place. Here's, here, here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Even if somebody had, could be as good, as good as a scribe and Pharisee, pretty good people, that still wouldn't do it. Because what does he say here? He doesn't say unless your righteousness equals. Does he say that? What does he say? Exceeds. He's also kind of doing a loving backhand to the scribes and Pharisees too, isn't he? He's saying you're pretty good people, but you're not good enough. Do you get the point? For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thank God for Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By being made a curse for us. And so I end this second point. Jesus is for the Bible. By taking up 2 Corinthians 5.20 and speaking to you, whoever you are. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us to you. And then Paul says, I beseech you, I urge you, be reconciled to God. Wouldn't you like to walk out of here reconciled to God? Because there's some people in here, you think you're reconciled to God, but you haven't come, as we'll see in just a moment, God's way. But you could leave reconciled to God. That's his invitation to you. Well, what we've seen so far is, the Bible is for Jesus. It's all about him. Jesus is for the Bible. He clarified it. He kept it. And then he died for us and our sin and not keeping God's law and rose again. The third thing I want to say is this. Jesus wants us all to know that this Bible, this Bible is for all of us as believers. It's for us. It, he wants us to know that. Jesus did not say, hey, listen, once you trust in me, don't worry about the Bible. No, remember he said in Matthew chapter 4, was it? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Remember that? Or he doesn't say, listen, if you, if you, if you, if you trust in me, don't even worry about those, those, those little things called laws. Because Paul's going to rightly write in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Therefore, don't worry about the law. He doesn't do that either. No, the Bible at large, holistically, and then the laws particularly, are still for us. I don't know how else to take verse 19. How about you? Let's read verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so much there. Uh, some people think that indicates that there might be some kind of stratification in heaven. Certainly it's likely a a reference to the judgment seat of Christ where we will all stand judgment if we're a believer not for our salvation but what we did with our salvation. Now let me hit something quickly that I bypassed. Did you notice when I read 
verse 18, those words, I say to you. Or you remember when we went over the sixth commandment, application by Jesus, and then the seventh commandment, he says, you've heard it said, remember that? But I say to you. From chapters 5 to chapter 7, which is a new sub-series in our series through Matthew, it's called the King's Ethics, some nine times Jesus says, I say to you. You say, what's so special about that? It's this. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, when people want to share truth about God, they would say what? Thus says the Lord, right? The Lord said, the Lord said. Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. What does he say? I say unto you. And this is just another way the scripture drills home the deity of Christ. Even the most distorted scriptures, like the Watchtower translation, can't take out the deity because it's woven in there so deeply. And this is one of the ways, again, Jesus drills home his deity. When Scripture speaks, God, Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, God, Scripture speaks. Do you see that? I say unto you. And in verse 19, the incarnate word, the written word, says we still need to take really seriously the written word. That's what the living word says. So, again, third point, Jesus wants to know that the Bible is for us as believers. Now, that should raise two questions in your mind. Are you all with me? We're going to get a little bit cerebral right here, okay? The first is a question of seeming, seeming contradiction. And the second is a question of confusion. I need some clarity. So here's the first question born of seeming contradiction. It's this. If Christ, as you just quoted from Romans 10.3, is the end of the law for everyone who believes, then why does the law still matter to us? Anybody ever think that? If Christ is the end of the law, y'all got to feel that tension before you can get the answer. If Christ is the end of the law, then how is he the end of the law? why, Why do I care about the law then? So I asked you to hold your place in Romans 8. And this is one of those places I'd like you to cross-reference. Romans 8. Actually, I got that wrong. It's Romans 10. So there's something called context, right? Context is always king, right? A text without a context can be a pretext for any dumb thing that somebody wants to assert from Scripture. It's context. Look what he says in verse 3. For being ignorant, he's talking about his fellow unbelieving Jews, of the righteousness of God, and therefore seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not do this. They did not submit to God's righteousness. But, here's the good news, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, here's the idea. The idea is this. When we, when we stop deceiving ourselves, you know, thinking that we can earn favor in God's eyes by keeping his law, in fact, when we actually come to the end of ourselves and we gulp and we say, I can't keep this law, especially knowing that it's supposed to be from the heart outward, when we, tu- when we get to that place, who do we turn to? Christ. And, who do we, and whose righteousness do we receive? 
Christ's righteousness. So in that sense, do you see, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's no longer the basis for which I can be saved or, or condemned. I, I plead it condemned, and Jesus kept the law in my place and died for my law infractions and rose again. But once we receive this imputed, this gifted, this credited righteousness, it doesn't mean we reject God's law, does it? Because there's the third use of the law that theologians talk about. The first one is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. The third use is to show us what it means to walk with Christ as redeemed, reconciled people. So you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, that holds. Jesus said that, right? He said, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments, right? That's not a good thing to do, is it? Be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever doesn't will be greatest. And, and I say literally, it shows us how, almost literally, it shows us how to walk with Christ because in Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp unto and a light unto my path. So we don't throw the word out. Again, man shall not live on bread by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So does that answer the seeming contradiction? The law is not the basis how we're saved. It's the end of the law of righteousness for everyone who believes. But now it is a pathway how we are to walk with God. But here's the second question. This one you might be thinking about more. And, and, you'll, and you'll, you'll, you'll get questions like this at, at the lunch table, down the street, wherever you, you engage people about God. It goes something like this. Um, what about all those Old Testament laws? Like the shellfish thing, man. I was with you when we went to that all-you-can-eat shrimp basket dinner, and you fed on shrimp. And I saw what it says in the Old Testament that you're not to eat that. You Christians just pick and choose the laws that you want to keep and the laws that you want to dismiss. Anybody ever been in a conversation like that? It's real. It happens. I'll never forget. It was my first place of vocational ministry, Community Baptist Church in South Bend, Indiana. And uh, there was a campus ministry, just like we have a uh, campus missionary, rather, just like we have some uh, college, university missionaries here. He was a missionary to Notre Dame. That's right, Notre Dame. And he, he was invited on a panel. I don't even know if they would hold such a panel today, honestly. But it was a panel to debate um, homosexuality. And he was asked to be a Christian representative. And I attended that. He, he, he did so well. And a guy really came after him, and he, he said just what I said. Listen, and he knew some Bible, this guy. He said, you Christians just pick and choose. You'll emphasize Leviticus 18 and 22. Man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman, for it's an abomination. But baby, just fast forward a couple of paragraphs, next cha chapter, same ballpark of verses. It also says you're not to mix your fibers, brother. And you got rayon and cotton. And you're not, next chapter. You're not to, you know, uh, shave the corners. No goatees allowed. You can't shave the corners of your beard. And what about these things called tattoos? The Bible forbids that too. Now, how would you respond to that? I want to equip you, okay, because we want to be an evangelistically minded church, and we need to be able to give any reason for the hope that's within us with fear and humility. Well, the first thing I would say is this. Jesus affirmed God's plan for human sexuality when he affirmed and quoted God's Genesis design for marriage, one woman, 
one man. He said, have you not read, right? He's going back to creation ordinance. For another, I would add that Paul in Romans 1 and again in 1 Corinthians 6 equally forbids and condemns homosexual behavior. And I would add, Jesus declared all meat clean, yes, but he never ever declared all sex clean. But I think you all get that here. The bigger question is this. How do I navigate through what laws apply and what don't with any sense of consistency so it doesn't look like I'm just picking and choosing. Y'all with me? It's complex, but I want to get as plain as I can. And the answer is understanding how the old covenant has given way to something called the new covenant. The old covenant given way to the new covenant. Now, there was one other place I asked you to hold your spot in the Bible. Where was that? Hebrews chapter 8. And I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Man, I hope you guys are with me because I think we really need to know this. Now, the uh, uninspired um, subject heading for my chapter says, Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant, which is what this chapter is about. You go down to verse 8, second line, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31, where God said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. No. For this is the covenant, verse 10, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And he goes on to quote, again, Jeremiah 31. But what I want you to particularly see is verse 12. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one what? Obsolete. One translation, void. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, growing old is ready to do what? Vanish away or disappear. He is saying the old covenant is now what? What's the word? Obsolete. Now, now, note this. Watch out. No offense, Andy Stanley. Saying the Old Covenant is obsolete is not saying the Old Testament is obsolete. We still learn about God, right? We still see his character. And even those laws that don't apply, we, we see something about the character of God. We'll get to that in just a moment. The key is to understand the nature of the Old Covenant. Are you all still with me? Where you got to summon all your caffeine to the mind to your mind to overcome those great breakfast burritos, okay? There are three components to the old covenant centered on the law. The first one component would be what's called the moral law of God. The moral law. That was uh, most clearly articulated in the Mosaic Code, what has been co come to be known as the Ten Commandments, right? That's the moral law of God. Then you have the ceremonial law of God. What do you think that is? Laws that you would group in the ceremonial category. Like the temple, first the tabernacle, then the temple, right? Holy days and all that. The, 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 the garments of the priest. The qualifications of the priest. The priesthood itself. The furniture. The sacrifices. All of that. That's ceremonial law. 
All right? So you got moral law, you got ceremonial law, and then you have civil law, which were laws for the Old Testament nation Israel, a theocratic nation. I'll expand on that briefly in just a moment. And by the way, there were some pretty hardcore theocratic laws. Like if you were serially a disobedient child, as you got older, you should read about that. If you were an adulterer, and you read that, you're like, that's really hardcore because God wants us to know how deadly sin is. Now, how does that relate then to the new covenant? Well, let's start with the one I just mentioned. Let's start with the civil law. There is no longer a Jewish theocracy. What is a theocracy? Anybody know what a theocracy is? It, it's basically, it's a rule of God over a nation. It is a nation built around an official religion, okay, led by leaders of that official religion. That's a theocracy. New te- the, I shouldn't say New Testament. Contemporary Israel, while we should love it, is not equivalent to that, okay? It's a whole, it's a whole different thing. So therefore, because the theocracy of Old Testament Israel no longer exists, what no longer applies? The civil laws to which maybe seriously disobedient kids and adulterers would be thankful for, given the penalty for those things at the time. Now, a a quick addendum. It is one thing for a nation to have a Judeo-Christian ethic. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's a good thing. But it is quite another thing to try and institute a theocratic nation in this new covenant era. It never works out in the right-wing versions and in the left-wing versions. Whether in, you know, a Christian version or a Muslim version or any other, it doesn't work out. Why? Because we showed we need a better king than any human king. So we don't go in that direction in either direction. So that's the civil law. How about the ceremonial law? Why doesn't that apply anymore? Civil law doesn't apply because there's no longer the Old Testament theocratic nation Israel. Why doesn't the ceremonial law? Because it's fulfilled in Christ. You read through Hebrews, you know. We don't need another sacrifice. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, right? We don't need another high priest. He is the high priest. Exodus pointed to it. Leviticus did. We don't even said this about the temple. Remember in John 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll, rise it up, I'll raise it up again. And, and, and then John says he wasn't referring to some physical structure. He was referring to his physical body, his resurrection. We meet God in Christ, not at a physical temple. So that stuff's passed away. Now what about the moral law? What about the moral law? Even the moral law was fulfilled in Christ. Did he not keep the law perfectly? Did he not keep that perfectly? Yes, he kept the Ten Commandments from the heart out. So, you might say, well, don't even the Ten Commandments apply today? What would you say? Do the Ten Commandments apply or not? Yes or no? Yes, but not the way you think. Okay, how about that? All ten of those commandments are repeated in the New Testament under the New Covenant with the exception of one. Which one is that? The Sabbath, right? The fourth commandment is not repeated. But guess what? We're still not to be idolaters, right? We're told. We're still not to blaspheme the name of the Lord. We're still to honor our mother and father. We're still not to kill or murder. 
or, or, or steal or commit adultery or lie or covet or any of that. We're still not to do that. As a matter of fact, I could very well preach a series on the Ten Commandments and probably will again sometime, and I will preach even from the Fourth Commandment, the principle of Sabbath. Now, all this unchanging moral law of God that still applies under the new covenant is called, say it with me, the law of Christ. Say it with me, the law of Christ. And what I just did with a little bit of sweat, and I can tell you, I spent more hours on this message than typical. I'd be ashamed to tell you how many hours I spent. Fortunately, I had a few extra weeks to do it. This is called what it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, to rightly divide the word of God. So that at the end of the day, we do say with 2 Timothy 3.16, rightly applied, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, and training in righteousness that the man, that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So yeah, yeah, Jesus wants you to know this Bible is for us. All of it. Rightly applied. Now, I'm going to land this extended West Coast flight um, with four ways. And I'm just, I'm just going to run through this just for your consideration. Four ways people who claim to be Christians undermine the Bible. Okay? Four ways. You might want to jot this down and just reflect on it later. Number one, I just want to say beware of people who claim to be Christians who at the same time are undermining the very book that Jesus said is still for us, okay? Number one, by equating tradition to revelation. By equating tradition to revelation. If I had time, I would list off all the crazy additions that the Pharisees did with the law. They said, for instance, you couldn't move an object more than six feet on the Sabbath, even using a broom. Remember a guy when I was in... I was in the Marine Corps and the infantry, and then later I went to chaplaincy for three months one summer to see if I wanted to be a chaplain. I, I had I made friends with a, a, um, a Jewish rabbi. Shmuel Feltzenberg was his name. He talked like most of the guys did. But boy, on the Sabbath, he made sure he taped that light shot on his refrigerator so he wouldn't violate the injunction of working and light on the Sabbath. That kind of stuff. Well, are there people today who still elevate tradition to revelation? Can you think of a worldwide church that does that? Which? Say it. Say which one? Yeah, the, the, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church has the magisterium, papal authority, purgatory, prayers to Mary, and on and on and on that they equate. Anytime you say something is equal with revelation, guess what? It becomes trumps the other, the stuff that you says equal with, with, with revelation. I go on and on. The cults do the same thing. Mary Ellen White for Christian science or for Seventh-day Adventism. You got to read her keys to Scripture to understand Scripture, they say. Or how about Ellen White? I may have said her. You have Mary Ellen Baker of Christian science. You have Joseph Smith with Mormonism, Right? You got pearl of great price and all these extra writings. This is, listen, let me just let me bring this, this, this first one to a close. Anytime you elevate tradition to truth, you lose the point of the Bible, which is Jesus and his good news. 
You do every one of these preach a false gospel that I just mentioned. Every one of them, without exception. Without exception. Some are closer to the truth than others, but at the end of the day, it's works, not grace. And we're saved by grace. This is what Jesus said to guys who are supposed to know the truth. So they can quote a lot of scripture and still be way off. He said in John 5, you study the scriptures. And you, you think you know me, but you won't come to me to have eternal life. It was right there, but they couldn't see it. In another place, he said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, though they were the scribes. So number one, we watch out for people who elevate tradition to revelation, even if they use all the Christian jargon, right? Be careful. Number two, by elevating human reason above divine revelation. It's not uncommon for people to say today, this is classic theological liberalism, we don't see miracles happen today. So miracles never happen. Or I've never seen a miracle, therefore miracles are not real. Or, this is one, how could a loving God send someone to hell? So they, they elevate human reason, right? Above divine revelation. Number three, by rejecting the sufficiency of the Bible. There's a lot of people who affirm the inerrancy of the Bible. In other words, they say, yes, the Bible's truth. But they don't believe it's sufficient to address everything that it speaks to. It doesn't speak to everything. It doesn't speak to brain surgery, right? Or how to set a leg, right? But it's sufficient, right, with everything that it speaks to. And yet there are people who affirm inerrancy but don't really think that the Bible is sufficient for addressing today's problems. What do they do? They turn to fallen, God-hating ideologies, coated with enough Bible to convince people who want to sound compassionate or don't want to be labeled this or that. Which, by the way, this is the burden behind the conference. Why we're holding this conference April 21st and 22nd. And again, I want to, it's crazy how many have registered recently. We might have to move to another venue but I want to encourage you to be there because we are going to faithfully and scripturally and compassionately address issues, not from the lens of culture, but from the lens of scripture. And then the fourth way is by eisegeting verses. Anybody know what eisegesis is? I, exegesis is reading out of scripture what's there. Eisegesis is putting there what's not there. It's taking a verse out of context. Beware of people who use scripture but take it out of context, the context of where it's located in the book of the Bible, but the context of the God who gave the Bible and what love truly looks like. To yesterday's verse that was most twisted was, judge not lest you be judged. Today's most twisted verse is love your neighbor. You can go, you can go for any cause and say, the scripture says this is what it means to love, love your neighbor, and therefore this is what it means to love your neighbor, when that's not what it's saying. People have used this in this recent season to justify playing along with the lie of same-sex marriage or playing the pronoun game, which is loving. Well, I thought love did not rejoice in lies but rejoiced in the truth, that love passage, 1 Corinthians 13. To not gathering as a church, to not challenging racial narratives as we pursue truth together. See, God defines what love is, Right? And he defines where? In his word. And love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Now, 
I know you guys feel like you probably just got fire hosed. Okay? There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Everyone's like, oh, you look like you've been in a wind tunnel for, you know. Um, let me just let me just close by saying, hey. The Bible is for Jesus. It's all about him. I want you to know, I want you to know this, Jesus. And Jesus is for this Bible. He shows us what these laws really mean. He lived by them and he died for us having not. And then he steps back and he says, this is for you so that you can walk with me. Rightly divide the word of truth of of this unchanging moral law, the law of Christ that continues to apply. If the music team would come, I'm sure there's a thousand ways people feel compelled to respond to a message like this. Maybe the first way you need to respond is I need to listen to that again because there's so much. But we are going to celebrate communion right now. We do this the first Sunday of every month. Communion is, is a family affair. It is for Christians. It's for Christians walking in commitment to a local church. So if you're not a Christian, then it wouldn't mean anything to you. Why don't you just think about what, what these elements mean? And I'm going to describe that in just a second. If you are a Christian, you need to be walking in commitment to a local family of believers. You need to take that very, very seriously because that's what we see in Scripture. And maybe you are a Christian and, and the Lord just kind of tapped you on the sternum somewhere on one of these points. The beautiful thing is, is as we bring our stuff to Jesus, he just continues to forgive us over and over and over. And not only forgive us, but empower us to walk in righteousness. So if the men would come with the elements, if you guys can line up. In this island, in this aisle, grab the elements. One of our last times, maybe our last time with this more sterile fashion of doing communion. If you would line up, we are going to hear a song called I Will Glory in My Redeemer, which is all about the cross of Christ, which is what this is all about. When everyone has received the elements, we will participate together and I'll lead us through that.